0: Welcome to episode three of The Heart Podcast, everyone. On today's episode, we'll be discussing various approaches to cultivating community-oriented lab spaces in which our guests reference building inclusivity in our research practices, aspects of conducting our research, and the notion that all of us are in different stages of our equity development. At the core of our conversation is, unsurprisingly, the deep intentionality about including and uplifting our communities, both on and off campus, in the work that we do in which everyone can contribute and have a seat at the table. Our first guest, Dr. Lonica blackman Carr, is an assistant professor in the Department of Nutritional Sciences at the University of Connecticut. Her weight loss control research focuses on reducing disparities in obesity prevalence and obesity prevention and treatment intervention outcomes in Black women. She develops research using qualitative, quantitative, and intervention methods to understand why Black women experience subpar outcomes in weight control preventions. Our second guest, Dr. Anna-Marie Lachance, is a chemical engineer and STEM educator at the University of Massachusetts Amherst who possesses numerous professional and creative projects. Through her teaching work, her podcast called Rule 63, social media presence, and political organizing, Anna is an advocate for abolitionist engineering education and intersectional transfeminism. More information can be found at www.thatannamarie.com. Let's jump into the conversation. We would like to begin by acknowledging that the land on which we gather is the territory of the Mohegan, Mashantucket Pequot, Eastern Pequot, Scaticoke, Golden Hill Pawtuxet, Nipmuc, and Lenape peoples, who have stewarded this land throughout the generations. Thank you both for for joining us for our third episode of the Heart Podcast. I think a, an appropriate question to kick us off will be if you could just share a little about yourself and the work that you're currently engaged in. Yeah, I wonder if, Lanika, if you can, if you could kick us off.
1: So glad to. So, I mean, the work that I'm doing honestly really centers on a health disparity population, but uh, a group of women that I'm um, really excited to do work in. Largely, I would say on a broad scale, I do behavioral weight control interventions, Um, but my training is as a registered dietitian, and I've kind of done all my schooling in nutrition one way or another. But now it's really nutrition with a public health scope on public health level problems. And so obesity uh, is really where I center my work because it's so connected with diseases that we can prevent um, that are often also connected to and rooted in what we eat, uh, which is something we all have to do um and all hopefully get to enjoy um but what i'm doing right now is gearing up for my next weight loss intervention for black women focusing again on this group because they are experiencing an extremely high prevalence of obesity um right now somewhere around 55 percent of black women are living with obesity when we add in the actual rate of or prevalence rate of overweight then we're talking about more than 80 percent of the population so there is definitely something from a public health lens where we have to ask questions about what do black women need to be well and how are these weight loss interventions that we know have been proven to work uh, for adults who are living with overweight and obesity reducing weight in an amount that provides health benefits but for black women specifically not really producing the greatest amount of weight loss that we could that we often see in white women who are in those same studies. So there's really, I would say, like a dual disparity going on in terms of high prevalence rate of overweight and obesity. And then also a disparity in what we consider to be our gold standard treatments, but they're actually not performing well and are not as effective for black women and other groups. But, you know, my passions have led me to focus on black women. So gearing up for that, but also doing some qualitative work to better understand Black adults and their nutrition related needs as it relates to health and weight status. So uh, those things have brought me into the greater Hartford region, also allowed me to connect with uh, Black men and women uh, from across the nation through some of my qualitative work, which I'm extremely passionate about as well. So I'll pause there and, and let others tell me, tell us what you're working on.
2: Hi, yeah, um, my name is Anna. I got my PhD in chemical engineering at UConn, working in Dr. Louis Sun's group on polymer nanocomposites. And it was there that I thought i will start thinking a lot about teaching, a lot about mentorship in a lab context, and also about polymer sustainability. So my practice now is I am a lecturer at UMass Amherst. I don't have a lab of my own, but I am developing coursework in things like polymer processing and sustainability. And My practice, I suppose, is training students, training chemical engineers to think about processes holistically, meaning not just the material inputs and outputs and energy, but how those impact different communities differently, thinking about environmental justice, workers' rights, and all these sort of intersecting issues um, that are tangential to chemical engineering that they may not necessarily get from other courses, and also developing abolitionist and transgressive teaching practices that make sure students feel included in the classroom and that they can bring their full selves into their work.
0: Wonderful. Thank you both so much for sharing a little bit more about yourselves and also the, the work that you're involved in. Yeah, it's so beautiful to hear that the both of you are like just so actively involved. I think it just very much emanates and gives an indication of just your your um, academic background the both of you have been very involved have a very impressive subset of of professionalism so thank you for that and you know i'm i'm curious given and i think you really touched on this just like the the intersecting issues related to just diet and health and i know speaking for myself being mexican you know i, I think when i think of diet and health and mental health as well i think of like the cultural component educational component, societal component. And I'm, I'm wondering, like, the, the both of you in your own words, like, given that the both of you have been involved in labs are currently involved in labs, like, what are elements or features that the both of you feel that make lab spaces like community oriented and equitable? Yeah. Uh, Anna, perhaps, uh, can you kick us off with this question?
2: Yeah, that's an excellent question i mean you are probably going to share in the show notes all the listicles 10 steps to an anti-racist lab 14 steps to a lgbtq inclusive lab uh, i'm not an expert at every single one of those points but i can tell you what worked in my graduate research lab so our lab had a great mentor a great pi dr sun who really valued diversity and after enough time and after enough you know recruiting and maintaining and making sure diverse students felt safe and comfortable, the inertia of that just kept going. So the grad students in the lab kept on a culture in the lab that was very friendly, very inclusive. Dr. Sun, we have weekly group meetings. So, Dr. Sun, whenever a new student joins the lab, we have them give a presentation, not just their research interests, but also their background, their culture with a specific special emphasis on food and the food from that culture because in his mind food brings all of us together um as we all know and the lab itself the grad students have a tradition of celebrating wins we often go to frank pepe's pizzeria or this place i think it's in vernon connecticut called sichuan pepper we have a few places that we love to do or we just do hot pot in one of their apartments so just like emphasizing you know everyone's home culture and everyone's home values, because we get international grad students from around the world, mostly China, but also from around the world, Brazil, Africa, everywhere. So yeah, just the valuing of diversity in terms of like personal, interpersonal relationships and values and culture. But also inclusion looks like what you actually do in your research and how you actually do your research. So in biology research in particular, it could mean using appropriately gendered terms when talking about yourselves or whatever you're working on there's a great paper that i could share called transgender rights rely on inclusive language that was a i believe science opinion piece by a few of my uh twitter friends a few of my trans twitter friends who emphasized that you know terms like male female man woman boy girl mouse or cell culture these can be very loaded uh, also you can design studies in a way that are inclusive and exclusive to trans people or non-binary people. If your survey only has like two checkboxes, man or woman, that could potentially exclude people, and it'll make your science worse because you're not including these sort of diverse um, populations. And that's just on the gender axis of these infinitely axes, you know, systems of intersecting identities. So there's a lot of ways that you know PIs can contribute to the culture, the other grad students can contribute to a culture in the lab, but everyone has to contribute a little bit. You know, UMass, I actually learned as part of my onboarding, is like ranked in the top five in terms of LGBTQ policies and practices, which is amazing. And I would love to see all schools reach that level, but in their climate survey last year that they did there's still a gap in the sense of belonging for LGBTQ students. So we can have the best practices, but that doesn't necessarily translate into everyone feeling safe and having a good sense of belonging in the area. So that tells us that it's not just setting some rules, it's also enforcing those rules. And it's also having everyone at the individual level contributing to a positive culture of anti-transphobia, anti-homophobia, anti-racism, everything.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's I've, lots of what you said, Anna, resonated with me. Um, but what jumped out to me that I feel also was mirrored in my kind of academic uh, rearing is how you conduct your research. And it takes me back to when I was getting my PhD and my first advisor, uh, Dr. Marcy Campbell, who was conducting community-based participatory research. And so, in essence, what the lab space looked like was the community. And so her work was done in rural North Carolina. And in community-based research, both academics and community members are considered to have the same level of expertise and power at the table. And so... I saw what that looked like on the ground um, through Dr. Campbell's lab, and what that also translated to in terms of the types of interventions that would help people modify their diet um, in ways that were culturally relevant to them, that were meaningful to them, that were also generated by them, um, because this partnership that she had built was existing for two decades. Um, And so that power sharing, that co-creation, Um, and I think co-creation has become a little bit more of a buzzword these days, was already existing in in Dr. Um, Campbell's lab. In my own lab, what it looks like is really considering how, first and foremost, how does this public health level problem of obesity and overweight, what does it actually look like when we are trying to look through the lens of black women? So, how do we understand weight? How do we understand values around weight, but connected to that food and physical activity? How are those two things experienced? What do they mean? So, from my lab, it's really about understanding and knowing that the understanding can partially be developed through the research that we do. And so, for me, that's where I really come to value qualitative research because then we are actually researching, using the words, and taking into accounts, our data are the words of the people. And so for me, I I hold qualitative research in such high value, even though the field I'm in really is all about producing quantitative, um, results. I find that those quantitative results become more robust when the qualitative is there to pair with them. It tells us a more nuanced story of what we need to do. And since I'm in an area where disparities in weight loss outcomes are present, we have a lot of questions. And so that community orientation in my lab also looks like, are we disseminating and translating our scientific publications to the population and the groups of women that we aim to serve? So the words serve and service come in a lot in terms of how I orient people to my lab that we are here to serve and the day we're not doing that. and producing research that actually matters and in some way improves health um, and other metrics that are important to the populations we serve, then we've kind of stepped away from our mission. And so being very mission centric and building in service to the community as the purpose in us doing this work is really, to me, how I set a foundation to be community oriented.
0: I love that. Thank you both so much for your contributions. I love just the, the the broader elements that the both of you shared. And it's interesting because as we develop this episode, or like the theme of this episode of building community oriented labs, I was thinking, like, are we being too, like, academic focused and just that we're just focusing on academia and like the work that's taking place on college campuses. But I, I think the both of you, like, very clearly emanated that, like, It's not just what takes place on college campuses. What's very important is what takes place outside of college campuses. And it that's the fact that everybody has to contribute to this work. And I love that it's, uh, I, I think Anna, you, you mentioned this, that, like, are we potentially excluding populations by the way that we're crafting the design of our studies? And I think that's, that's so that that's so crucial to, to what, to what you mentioned and also like. Kind of thinking about, like, how we're conducting our research. I was recently introduced uh, in this past year, this concept of like participatory action research, (PAR), which is like very much involving the community in the research that we're doing and like diet. Health mental health is such a crucial component and it and I wonder, like, if there's this duality because food brings us together. But it could also be kind of harmful in a way and I'll speak. Personally, because culturally, like, on the weekends, we're like, oh, carne asada, like, steak, tacos, you know, which sounds really great on the surface, but. Also, like, Hispanic cultures have a very high propensity of, like, diabetes and heart problems and, like, w- what are we doing about those issues as well? So, it was like, how can we find this balance? And, um, you know, I'm, I'm curious to hear from the both of you, like, what and the both of you lightly touched on this, but I'm wondering, like have there been particular guiding forces, perhaps in your academic trajectory, maybe mentors that have helped guide the development of each of your particular labs, like how you navigate just the the, the nuance of your labs, the purpose of your labs. Um, yeah, curious to open the floor to, to whoever would like to contribute first.
2: I can start by saying that everything you just mentioned about working with communities rather than for communities or on behalf of them is really important to me. Even though I don't have a lab myself, I think constantly about the principles of design justice. There's this great book by Sasha Costanza Chak, all about the design justice and the different design justice principles. And one of those principles is before seeking new design solutions, we look for what is already working at the community level. We honor and uplift traditional, indigenous and local knowledge and practices. So most of the principles revolve around this idea of community-oriented work and recognizing that instead of us, the engineers, coming into a community and trying to fix their problem, we look at what's already working. We look and we work with those communities to see what's already working, what solutions they have, and upholding and honoring that as just as valid as our fancy-pants equations and data-driven solutions. So there's that. And I also know at the personal level, if the goal is to build an inclusive lab, I can share a bit about my experience coming out as a trans woman in my research lab. I started grad school in fall 2017 and August and in October. It finally crystallized in my mind after 22 years that I needed to transition. And after nearly a year of being in the closet about that and just sort of being quiet in the lab and like sort of hiding bits of myself and uh, getting to be, having to be one person on the day and getting to be another person at, on nights and weekends, getting to be Anna, that sucked a lot. And it was like night and day between like having to hide myself and the, the ability to bring my full self into the lab. But in the process of coming out was really the slow process of finding individual allies and individual team members so that when I finally had the big reveal the big coming out to like the world then i know that i would be safe and comfortable and coming out to my pi so me a bunch of other grad students and my pi sort of the leader the mentor above all of us he treats us all like colleagues and he respects all of them like colleagues so when i came out to my advisor dr sun in an individual meeting he made it incredibly clear that even though he doesn't know everything about transness, he totally respects it, and that he knew that this was going to make me a happier person and a better researcher. So that immediately made me feel better. And then when I came up to my lab mates a couple weeks later, I was like, my name is Anna Marie, I like to use her pronouns. Dr. Sun then went on and ranted for longer than I did (laughs) during group meeting uh, about how we need to be respectful of one another and always respect each other's names, pronouns, whatever we have going on, and I just really appreciated that, that he, even though he wasn't, like, you know, big LGBTQ advocate, lifelong advocate, he still put in the time and effort to learn, and he immediately respected it, just on the basis of we should respect each other. Crazy, right? That's not super hard, right? (laughs) But I can tell just from that that he really values diversity, and he even later told me, like, yeah, I barely knew anything about transness, but he put in the time and effort to learn. So sometimes being inclusive and incorporating diversity into your lab just means being open and trusting others and trusting that the ability to bring their full selves into a lab will make them happier and a better worker.
1: Yeah, I hear that completely. And I'm so glad you had the experience of having a safe space and having a, and that's safety being established from the top. Because that sets a tone for how the rest of the lab, you know, is going to coalesce around, um, you know, our lab mates. Because these, especially if anybody's gone through a doctoral experience, your lab mates are the people you're going to interact with and the people who you count on for support um, in all the ways, not just the academic ways, but the emotional and mental support that is so necessary to being successful in completing these doctorates, uh, which is no small feat. And so, you know, thinking about, from my experience, what the development has really looked like or how I've seen labs operate, I would say I've learned from both positive and, I would say, less supportive environments. And part of that, I think, comes from having been at different institutions, so I think that can be a value or at least at minimum working across different um, PIs. So you can see that there are differences even within an institution of how people just um, really set up and form their labs. But what's guided me has definitely having experienced lack of opportunity, even though I've asked for opportunity. Um, and so that has shaped my experience as a PI and making sure that I am offering opportunity to all of my graduate students um, and, and my undergraduates as well. And so if you're showing up to put in time and effort because you're equally passionate to learn and to contribute to a community, then it's my job to provide that opportunity. It's then, of course, their job in partnership to Take on, you know, responsibilities they've committed to and things of that nature, all of that goes without saying. Um, but my job is to provide opportunity. And so I've seen how detrimental that can be into making your next transition, wherever that might take somebody when those opportunities are not present um, or not afforded to you in that particular lab. Um, but I would say, on the flip side, the positive experience I had was really as. A postdoctoral scholar where my mentor in that lab was actually my first time ever being in a lab space where folks with minoritized identities were calling the shots and also comprised the majority percentage of you know folks in the lab still wasn't a huge lab space but it was my first time ever having had people who look like me be at the helm and conducting work that was important for you know contributing to the disparity space in lots of different academic disciplines and it was a breath of fresh air Um, nutrition is very much still a space that lacks diversity and struggles with this issue of diversity in many types of identities not just racial or ethnic Um, and so for me I consciously think about what my lab centers on knowing that our work is health equity focused health disparity issues are top and central in our agenda and then making sure that the team who's working on that is also a team that is diverse in nature and bringing different perspectives and able to contribute in that way so you know just being mindful of who's at the table which ultimately i do know is important to the women and the communities that we are doing research with and doing research, you know, in the spirit of providing and crafting solutions that can, you know, ultimately be helpful on what I hope to scale up to be a, a public health scale. So that's been really, really important. and I think my students have responded positively to having a space where we can talk about and center issues of diversity in nutrition. Because those conversations are held so little or at very basic levels where depth is not there, just really focusing on the problem, but not necessarily on the solutions that might already be present that we just aren't leveraging or incorporating. And so Anna, you, you kind of nodded, gave a nod to that as well in what you spoke um, about in terms of working with communities, not just for.
0: Thank you both so much for for your honesty and your vulnerability in this process. I, I loved the contributions that the both of you made. I think, like, I, I think the three of us can probably uh, resonate with this idea of, like, the, the more we delve into research, the more we feel that we know nothing. Like, it's just there's, <laughs> you can kind of delve into this rabbit hole. There's just so much information out there. But it I, I guess what I'm alluding to is there's this process of development that we're in this constant state of evolution and growth, and it's, um, I, I think sometimes, at least in my experience, like sometimes the titles can kind of make us weary of, like, a, of saying, I really don't know, but I'm here to support you. And Anna I think you really alluded to that in, like, you know, the experience that you had where, you know, like your, the, the professor that you were working with, like, very much acknowledged that, that maybe they weren't and extremely knowledgeable, but they were still there to support you in the best way that they could. And I think that's the best way you know, to approach this work and Lonica, like as well, you know, it's like, you're there just in this movement and you're there to include the community and you're there to support your students in their trajectory and in your trajectory as well. Um, I also think it's really interesting how the 3 of us, like, we have different perspectives based on the institutions that we've been at. Like, I'm from Arizona. You know, like, you know, the, both of you seem to be, uh, you know, based in the, in the, in the Northeast. I know, Lonica, I believe uh, you, you did some of your work at Chapel Hill, uh, mm-hmm. University of North Carolina yes. Chapel Hill as well. And so, you know, like, that's a very interesting, like, uh, dynamic and perspective that you bring to this uh, conversation as well. Um, and, like, I, I think I'm curious to hear, like, given that the, the overall theme of. This, uh, this, this season really has been like just how how we can incorporate the community, how we can uplift the community. And I'm wondering, like do the both of you interact by any chance with like nonprofits or community organizations that you partner with or that perhaps uplift this work? And if so, like what are those community organizations and and how how are they you know uplifting the voices of of our community and what what their needs are?
1: Yeah, I mean, maybe I'll take that first because I imagine, Anna, you might actually have a a wealth uh, of experience to share. Uh, But for me, I feel like I'm still getting my feet wet and relocating to this area coming from North Carolina a few years ago. But having COVID make its entrance, you know, just maybe four to six months after I got here, I'm still just emerging and getting to know um, Connecticut and uh, where I'm situated in the greater Hartford area. But when I think about nonprofit organizations that have lifted up my work and been essential to me, um, working with and building relationships with community, it has definitely actually been through Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. So this is one of the, or the oldest, uh, historically black Greek sorority in the US. It is an international organization. I happen to be a member, um, but. You know, across the chapters that I've been a part of, they've always been open to me bringing kind of my work and opportunities to engage Black women in health-promoting interventions. And that's been nothing but a benefit, and I'm so happy to have that engagement. Uh, But I am, you know, actively working to partner in more meaningful ways. What we have between us are really shared emphasis on the health of black communities. And so it's in that shared mission and purpose where I know we found connection. And in the spaces that I've worked, whether that's being in the Northeast or down in the South, um, the historically black church where the congregation might be predominantly black um, has also been a huge supporter because the black church from just a cultural perspective has been a site not only of religion and faith, and spiritual guidance, but for the black community and thinking about you know marginalization experiences within the US is also a civic institution and a place where a lot of health promoting interventions have been placed or rooted and, and grown within with membership. And so that's been another um, big institution where there's always local um, local avenues for partnership that's been great and you know i'm hoping to continue to be a part of those communities because we just are here to really serve each other serve one another and serve our serve the memberships uh, in the ways that are important to them and so yeah that, i'm looking forward to doing more of that and becoming more community engaged which has been my emphasis this year is really finding my footing um, in this new new state and new area
2: That is absolutely wonderful, Lanika. Your work is really inspiring. In my research lab specifically, back in grad school, we did a little bit of outreach. Uh, First of all, we took on as many undergraduate researchers as possible, not just to collect our data for us, but also because we emphasized um, diversity. So one of the groups we worked with was the Jack Kent Cook Foundation. It's a national organization that matches high school students who are economically underprivileged to research labs to get a three or four week experience working in an undergraduate research lab setting. That's really great for high school students who wanna sort of go off to university and become researchers someday and give them that hands-on experience with technical research, which is really cool. I also, back at UConn and perhaps coming soon to UMass, pulled off a queer science day, we call it the Queer Science Conference, which was a one day long event during Pride Month this year in 2022, <laughs> the current year, uh, to bring on a bunch of LGBTQIA high school students and have them spend a the day with a bunch of LGBTQIA grad students and faculty at UConn who are all in STEM. So throughout the day, they did science demos, hands-on science demos, they did tours of different campus facilities like research labs and also the Yukon rainbow center just to show off a that they would be supported if they came here to Yukon and did research and came for an undergraduate degree in stem. But also that critical representation piece that there are. Queer and trans researchers that people who are like them or who look like them are getting. Graduate degrees and are professors and faculty in stem, which is really important for. LGBTQ youth to see that and to get that sort of support and mentorship. So that's sort of been my experience with outreach. I worked for a bit this year with the Vergdano Institute for Inclusion here at UConn, which is the School of Engineering's Diversity and Outreach Center. So we do a lot in that realm. So go check out inclusion.engr.uconn.edu. And I'm hoping to start rolling that out here at UMass too. a Queer Science Day. I'm helping with the Diverse Women in STEM Conference this weekend, actually, which is all student-led and student-run. The full title is the BIPOC LGBTQ+, and Disabled Women in STEM Conference. And it's just a day for uh, undergraduates and high school students in the Five Colleges area here in Massachusetts to see talks from diverse women from all over the world who are in STEM and just uplift them and empower them and show them what sort of work that they could be doing if they, pers- if they continue in STEM and that's really great. And so uh, outreach is very important to me and very important to building inclusive environments here in STEM.
0: Given that it seems like something that's resonating with the three of us is that we, we've all ventured uh, to, to new areas. New realms, you know, like where we've and we've kind of taken the best that the best of what we've uh, acquired and are trying to implement that in our new spaces and are also trying to change, perhaps the negatives that we've come across and trying to change that in our respective areas as well. So I know uh, Lonica, one one of the things that really resonated with me that you mentioned is that, like, we're here to serve each other and one another. And that's something that I really live by that, like, success is like collective success. Like, if you're succeeding, I'm succeeding in the process. And like, it's all about just collective, you know, just like forward uh, thinking. And I love that. Um, and, And I wonder too, like, on the flip side of this, like, it seems like the both of you are just so actively involved and are very passionate about this work. Like, I'm curious to hear like, what, what are the broader implications of academic institutions and perhaps just like the broader community, like choosing not to build like community oriented labs? Like what what's like, what's society missing out by not incorporating these beautiful elements that the both of you have uh, have highlighted? Like Lanika, would you like to get us started?
1: Absolutely, the word that comes to mind is innovation. Uh, we in the US are an ever diversifying population. And so, and there is research out there that tells us that when we have different perspectives at the research table, we develop more innovative work. And so I, the danger in choosing not to be inclusive and choosing not to be community engaged is continuing to put out research that has no relevance. And no relevance to our public health issues. And again, my frame is always thinking about obesity because of its relation to health, but it has no relevance and no practical use for the public. And a lot of us are, you know, hopefully uh, can, gonna continue to be successful in external funding from NIH or NSF, where wherever your funds come from. Um, and there's a public health mission in being funded by certain entities. And so we have to be mindful of that, especially as we're using taxpayer dollars to produce good, rigorous science. It has to be science that means something. And so that is the danger, continuing to work in silos, continuing to, you know, not breed innovation. And I think that just doesn't advance science and that and the advancement of science and progress is, I think, part of the work that we do. And it's just the nature of science. So. That's what it means to me in a nutshell.
2: Lonica, I think you said it absolutely perfectly in that more diverse teams produce better science. And that's one thing that I'd like to stress to people. Like, there are studies that show that your citation counts increase, and obviously, citation counts are an imperfect measure of actual impact. But there are studies that show that more diverse teams produce more citation counts and more relevant research. So even if you were an absolute ghoul that didn't com- <laughs> that didn't care about other people and didn't care about diversity, it's incumbent upon you if you wanna have more citations and better science and better funding perhaps to hire and maintain and make feel safe a diverse team. So there's that. And also we have to wonder how the current system gets perpetuated. So the thing about all of our amazing outreach and mentorship and all these great things that we're doing, me, Lanika, everyone, that labor often is unpaid. That labor is often unpaid and unsupported at the institutional level. That's just our free time. That's our volunteer work. And it's great that we do this. I still value it. I believe that all people have a responsibility to another. I believe that all queer people have a responsibility to one another. But without the sort of institutional backing, and that looks like funding, and that looks like things like having outreach and service be more of a component of tenure and your tenure promotion process, until those things come, until that institutional support comes, then, you know, it's going to keep falling on us, the minoritized, the marginalized, the historically excluded, to keep doing free, unpaid labor to try to help each other and try to help our own communities until everyone values outreach and service and diversity and everyone actively contributes to it there's a there's a limit to how much we can get done because we're unpaid and unsupported the classic story of how that goes is you know a marginalized person maybe a black woman or someone goes off and they um do that, they have their research, they have their teaching, and then they have a huge service component. Maybe it's because they're the only black woman in the department or the school. And so all of the, hey, Nesby, we're gonna have a panel. Can you be on our panel? And all those little things, they add up. So what that means is that you're taking time away from research. And then the research maybe is 95% as good as it could be. And then when it comes time for tenure promotion, it's like, well, where is all this research stuff? All this, you know, what have you been up to? But they don't value the teaching, they don't value the service or the mentoring or anything, so they don't get promoted, or worse, they get fired. And the system maintains itself like that. It's a vicious cycle of, you know, nothing ever changes, and it falls on people to do the work, and then that work is undervalued and unpaid, which negative feedback loop. So that's that on that. So the risk of not supporting, you know, diversity and outreach efforts is that they won't happen. And you'll never see the actual better science in the first place.
1: Yeah, and a mic drop on that moment. Um, so thank you for illustrating that so well, I see that daily and your illustration is on par with what we've seen documented in the evidence base across disciplines it's the kind of things that i hear in conversations with my colleagues who also have marginalized identities about where the work falls and you know i think it really behooves an institution to take that into account to really think about how you invest in systems, right, that put out, have that negative feedback loop, and we need to make that shift towards more positive outcomes because that is what will get us to having, you know, the most innovative and inclusive teams that put out research that still will be attractive for funders. And that is such an important mission to a place like UConn and many others as well. And so we have to invest in underrepresented scholars, marginalized scholars, and absolutely think about what does promotion and tenure look like when we consider this other work that doesn't necessarily fit well into how we have currently designed academia and research evaluation but it's absolutely necessary for success when we're working with underrepresented and marginalized students and success in conducting health equity work and so i just wanted to you know second everything that anna just illustrated
0: yeah th- thank you thank you both so much for that i think there there's such uh, there's such an urgency and importance for this work, because we're losing out on not only, like, innovation, it, like, innovation progress, personal progress, but also, like, economic progress in not investing properly investing in our communities and the people that are engaging in this work as well. There's, like, these so many, like, structural, very Western centric components it's, that are very visible in academia that are not supporting the folks that are like, you know, uplifting this work. And I I know we're like we're, we're at time. I'm just I'm curious if we could do like a super quick rapid fire like what's just what does forward look like? I always like to leave on a positive note like what's maybe a piece of advice that the both of you are willing to share with members of our audience like researchers, students, policy makers perhaps. Like what what do you uh, wish to leave them with to to further engage or be innovative in this work? Because I know innovation has been a theme in our conversation. So yeah, uh, curious to to hear what the both of you think.
2: Yeah, that takes place on both the individual level and the institutional level. So the institutional level, I actually can send you a few different documents that you can throw on the show notes about like the black and engineering action item list or the trends and STEM action item list, you know, the 14 steps for an integrated lab and things like that. But that can mean bringing on LGBTQ speakers, bringing on BIPOC speakers for your seminars, hiring us, making it a point to recruit at OSTEM, Nesby, and other avenues, and making sure that we're supported when we get here. So there's all these sort of, you know, more money, basically, more money and support. Uh, and also at the individual level, you know, there's a bunch of different advice you can give about how to support diversity and, you know, be an inclusive person, but one big thing is just to not, Put too much pressure on yourself to be perfect and to view mistakes as learning opportunities. So one example is that my. Graduate research was not all sunshine and rainbows as I made it may have made it out to be before one of my lab mates about five or six weeks after I came out to them. Asked me, hey, Anna, can I ask you a question? And I said, sure, what's up? And he asked me, so what's the difference between a trans woman and a drag queen? Which is an interesting question, because drag queen is a performer and a trans woman is a type of woman. You thought I was putting on a show for you this whole time, like the vast half month and a half. (laughs) But we talked it out and, you know, it was a learning moment. It was embarrassing, but it was for me and that, but it was a, a, you know, a learning moment. And also to be loud in your support. Don't just keep your advocacy, you know, to yourself and to your friends and to your little lab group, but to be loud as possible, to show your support for queer and trans students, to show your support for diverse students of all types, Um, because you never know who might benefit. Remember, I was in the closet for almost a year. And I overheard a lot of heteronormativity and gender essentialism, and I thought, oh God, maybe I shouldn't come out, or maybe I should be really careful how I come out. But The point of that is to say you never know who's queer you never know who has an invisible disability so you never know who might be benefiting by being inclusive until you do it and it'll be so beautiful so beautiful once you do incorporate all these ideas into your space wherever it is that you work don't worry about changing the world just focus on where you are change what you have power over your lab your classroom i guarantee you that you have power, some sense of control over some area of your life. So start there and blossom.
1: That's beautiful. I will not add too much to that, but what I will say is for those of us who are in these privileged positions to be offering opportunities and creating spaces for research and innovation, look around you to do a self-assessment of your lab, who's not at the table, who is not represented. So doing that self-check and knowing that health equity and health disparity type work is not a research plus. It's not an add-on or an addendum. It really does need to be integrated. And it's only in that way that the work will be shared, that the load will be shared, not just for, you know, faculty, PI, and other leadership who have these marginalized identities, but it does need to be work and effort that is shared by us all. And I think it's only in that way that we will make significant strides in equity in many places, including higher education and the research that we do. And so I hope that encourages us to be fearless in doing that. And as Anna said, not to strive for perfection, but to start somewhere and be okay with figuring it out and having difficult conversations and growing. And that is the only way that we are really going to move forward. And I think it's possible, but we have to be maybe willing to be a little clunky in the process, but to engage those who really do know exactly what they're doing. Um, And that's okay. We're here to learn and scholarship never ends, even in the space of becoming more inclusive and diverse.
0: Such a beautiful way to end. Yeah. Snaps to that. Snaps to that to the both of you. That's, that's so beautiful. <laughs> snaps to everybody. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you both so much for your time. This is such a beautiful conversation. I love like the element of like just guiding innovation, doing a self-check, like identifying who's not at the table, being inclusive of communities. Which i think the three of us you know have been uh, very much practiced in our uh, you know respective spaces um might i say like i really commend the the work that the both of you are doing actively you know i think like that so much you know coming from coming from an econ background there's so much that can get caught up in theory but there's that there we need that connection to practice And I think the both of you are just actively involved in that process, like you're actively carrying it out, you're passionate about it, and you're putting it into practice. One of you mentioned that like, we never know who might benefit from this work. Like, I think sometimes we do have like person to person interactions with this, but like, we never know who might read this research, who might take this on that can just, again, going on to innovation, like they might spearhead, you know, they might be the next step in that ladder to, you know, progressing. Uh, the societal movement. So, the point is to start somewhere and to keep growing.
1: As always, we're thankful for the support from the Office of Diversity and Inclusion and the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning at the University of Connecticut. Because it takes a village and it takes heart.